I've been on a bit of a preaching hiatus, so it's so good to see you. In case you forgot me, my name is Cameron, your redheaded pastor, and it's my joy today to continue our sermon series through our core values. So our, our normal pattern here is to simply preach through books of the Bible, but you can do topical series on occasion if you ask God for forgiveness, and so we're, we're doing that, and we're going to spend four weeks considering who we are and what we feel God's called us to. So if you're brand new to the congregation, it's a great time to jump in to check out the heartbeat of our church. But we all need reminders, don't we? We get busy, we get distracted, we forget what we should value, what God's called us to. So we all need a reorientation once a year about who we are as a congregation. And so our mission is simple. Can anybody say it out loud? We exist to multiply what? Disciples and churches. And then we have core, four core values that define us and drive all that we do, and that's the gospel, spiritual formation, community, and mission. And so Chris kicked off our sermon series last week, remember, by preaching on the gospel, which we use a down arrow to represent. So why do we use a down arrow? Well, in our sin, we were helpless and hopeless, but Jesus stepped out of heaven, came to earth to rescue us. Amen. It's glorious news. And then in response to him coming down to save us, we respond in three different ways, upward in spiritual formation, inward in community, and then outward on mission, as we get sent out to serve the mission of God uh, on God's creation. Now, this morning, our focus is on spiritual formation, the up arrow. And, and to summarize this, what I'm arguing this morning is, God doesn't simply save us to spring us from hell. He saves us to change us. Yes, when we initially trust in Jesus, we are justified. Big fancy word, all that means is we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We praise God that we're not going to hell, that we've been forgiven from our sins. But God also desires to sanctify us. That is, progressively, he desires to free us from the power of sin that operates in our lives. And he desires to gradually conform us to the very image of his son, Jesus Christ. So to sum up spiritual formation, here's a real simple definition. It's the process whereby we gradually become more like Jesus. That's it. You know, the Apostle Paul, he was passionate that the church in Galatian, and in fact, all the churches got this, that they were formed. Notice this verse in Galatians 4.19. My little children, for whom I am in again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, I nor any man knows what it's like to experience childbirth, though I did get really bad food poisoning the other night. Is that similar, ladies, at all? I see a lot of heads saying no. You get epidurals, though. I had to endure the pain, all right? So maybe it's kind of the same. But what Paul's doing is he's reaching for a painful metaphor to convey his burden that, hey, I'm weighed down by the fact that I want Christ to be formed in you. Now let me say that all of our pastors carry this same burden for you. You realize we pray for you in this way? Your city group leaders pray for you in this way? Because far too many people think that Jesus is only fire insurance. And their attitude goes something like this. Well, thank you, Jesus, that you saved me from hell and that you've got me to heaven. So peace out. I'll see you when I get to heaven. Or maybe Christmas and Easter. That's how it goes for a lot of people. Then they just get back to living their everyday life. But understand that Christ didn't save you just to simply to tack on eternal life to your current life. He saved you to, to lead you in the abundant life of joy that only comes when we make him the sum and center of our lives. 
And we come to experience more of the abundant life, more of Jesus, through the process of spiritual formation. So I'm going to take a little bit of a different angle this morning to teach on formation. We'll hit on the practicals, but what I want to do is I want to connect formation to God's grand design, His grand plan for formation, and I hope is it gives you fresh fuel to pursue formation in Jesus. Understand that formation is so much bigger than simply reading your Bible in Panera with a bagel, praying that God would help you make it through the day. That's my life a lot of weeks, okay? The West Panera, just right up here. I see many of you there. So yes, spiritual disciplines are essential and helpful. You will never be conformed to the image of Christ without being in the Word of Christ. You'll never be more like your Savior without communing with Him in prayer through that discipline. You'll never be shaped in his image without the Christian community. But I want you to see there's there's more to spiritual formation than just the practices. I want you to see there's a bigger and a more grand purpose. And I've discovered in life that when we get a clear vision for the end, it motivates the means. Let me see if you can relate. I experienced this in college. Let me just say it really took me two full years for it to sink in that college wasn't just a hangout party. I mean, it it took me a while. I'm a little bit of a dense man. So for the first two years of my college career, I was a terrible student, but I excelled in PlayStation 2. Whitetail deer hunting, fraternity parties, was never in a fraternity, but I loved free food and free alcohol during that time. My mom would call me, hey, how's your GPA? Not that great, but man, I killed an amazing buck this week. And I mean, that was my mentality my first two years of college. And then when I was 20, my guidance counselor sat me down and said, hey, it's time to declare a major. And it finally all clicked. Wait a minute, college prepares me for my future? I mean, it was like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Scales fell off that made me, my, my effort here determines my earning potential in the future. It's like light bulbs went off in my brain. And so in a lot of different arenas of life, when we see there's more at stake, it motivates us. So here's what's at stake in your spiritual formation. Here's the big idea, and it's in your notes. There's more to your rescue than simply being freed from hell. God rescued you to recreate you in the very image of Jesus so you can rightly represent God on this planet. It's a weighty responsibility. That should motivate us. So there's more to your rescue than just being freed from the fiery place. God desires to recreate you in his image so you can rightly represent him on this planet. And so to help us to see God's big purpose for our formation, I've got three biblical truths I want to highlight, and here's number one. I had four, ran out of time, okay, so I combined three and four. My notes are wrong. That's how pastors do it on the weekends. All right, number one, God created us in his image. First big truth. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says... Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish, praise God for that, I love catching bass, of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So understand that when God created the heavens and the earth and us, he did not do it because he was lonely, because he needed us. God is perfectly self-sufficient. He enjoyed perfect fellowship among the members of the Godhead for all eternity. 
He created us for His glory. And understand that all creation glorifies God in a general way. Scripture talks about the skies proclaiming the glory of God, the rocks crying out. But understand, you're the crown of God's creation. And we glorify God in a special way. The Bible says we're made in the very image and likeness of God. And so what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, it means that we are actually like our Creator. And it means that He created us to represent Him on the earth. Let's pause for a minute and just think about what an amazing privilege this is. Out of all of God's creation, mountains and alpacas, it can only be said of human beings that we share in the image of God, that we're like God. We're certainly not identical, but we are similar to God. How amazing is that? Now, how are we like God? Well, we'll continue learning about God forever in this existence and in the next, so we'll never know all the ways. But here's just a little bit of a sampling We're like God in that we have a conscience. We have a moral compass that tells us right from wrong. It gets skewed at times, but there's this internal sense of conscience, a moral compass. We're the most relational of all his creation, reflecting the relational nature of the Trinity. I mean, you don't see like little beavers taking each other out for coffee and hanging out and talking about the Word of God. We're the most relational of all his creation, even though they are relational. We are immortal creatures. We are literally beings. Just look around. Every person in this room will exist forever in some place or another place. We have dominion over the earth. Praise God for hunters and gardeners. This is the reason we get to do those things. And we are creative creatures. They may be saying, well, wait a second, Cameron. Animals create as well. But, man, we're so much better than animals if you think about it. Going back to the beaver a minute for the case study. beavers build great dams. If they've been building the same dams they've always built for hundreds of generations. Just look at us. What kind of dams can we build? We can build big damn dams like the Hoover Dam. So take that, beavers. We're better than you. (laughs) And so we are actually like God in so many ways. And then the mission that God's called us to is to represent him on the earth. So bear with me a moment as we go back into history. When the Israelites received the book of Genesis, they would have been familiar with a common practice that kings employed when they conquered territory. So one king could not rule physically in every area, so he would enter into his conquered territories and set up statues or images. And those images were to serve to reminders of everybody in that province that, hey, you've got to give glory to this king. You've got that those images reflected his glory and it caused people to submit to him. And what we see in Genesis is that this is God's exact intended purpose for us. He means for us to function as mirrors in this world, to reflect his glory back to a watching creation. Think about it this way. Why did God always forbid the Israelites to make graven images, to not make idols? Why did he tell men like Gideon to tear down idols? Well, he's already made images of himself. And who are those images? This is participation. It's us. It's humanity. It's an amazing privilege. And so as Adam and Eve, in the beginning, submitted to God, cultivated the earth, reflected the attributes of God as they were naked, no loincloths needed, unashamed, enjoying God and one another, I mean, they perfectly reflected his glory. I mean, they made all Nebraskans jealous by truly living the good life, okay? They may be saying, hey, wait a minute, i got to push back. I have seen Naked and Afraid on the Discovery Channel. 
and being in a jungle, naked, no clothing, biting flies, mosquitoes. That does not sound very appealing to me, but understand it was paradise. Bugs didn't bite back then. They were living the good life. They perfectly displayed God's goodness and his glory. And then we see that it's God's plan to further his glory through his image bearers. Think about it. Why is the command to be fruitful and multiply so significant to carry out dominion? Well, God wants to scatter his glory through his image bearers. They were to multiply offspring so his image could be proliferated, so all of creation could see his glory through humanity. And so that's a way back then. What's this mean for all of us in West Omaha in 2018? Well, first of all, foundationally, it means that you have dignity. I mean, just think about it. When God looked out at all of his creation, only you, the person looking back at me right now, is said to be made in his image. This should give all of us a deep and profound sense of self-worth. You might be here this morning. Maybe you've been abusing your past. Up to this point, people have only used you, abused you, trampled on you, but understand that your Heavenly Father values you. He esteems you. The fact that his image is in you makes you meaningful and valuable. And this also means that we should treat other image bearers, neighbors, co-workers, everybody around us, even Iowa Hawkeye fans, with dignity. (laughs) Now, now for me, being a Tennessee fan, it'd be the Florida Gators, God's most wretched creation. (laughs) It's about football season. I'm getting fired up. But seriously, this means that There are no second-class or second-tier people in the eyes of God. Amen? It means that every race and people group deserves dignity and rights. It means that people like the elderly, the mentally handicapped, the mentally ill, children living and yet unborn like the one in my wife's baby, they deserve dignity and honor and protection and value as human beings. Amen? And then secondly, it means that you have a great destiny. I know it doesn't feel like that. Maybe it doesn't feel like you serve any purpose on this earth, but God means for you to have great significance, great purpose. He designed, yes, you, though you're not a pastor, though you're not on a church staff, He designed you to represent Him on this planet. You know, we're a world that's obsessed with looking in the mirror. I see this at the gym I go work out at. Maybe I'm just jealous, but I see this big bicep man pumping iron just so in love with the image in the mirror. We're so infatuated with just making sure that other people think well of us. When actually, our primary concern should be as humanity that that people around us would see the Creator God in us. That's why He designed us. So that's number one, we're creating His image. But why is it that we have such a hard time with self-worth? Why isn't that we have a struggle with treating people with dignity? Um, Why do we have a hard time fulfilling our destiny? Well, it's because of our second big truth this morning, number two, and this is the bad news. It gets pretty depressing at this point. Let me warn you, okay? I'll take you to a happy place at the end. But number two, God's image is distorted in us because of sin. Or we could say that God's image is marred in us because of sin. Now, notice Genesis 3, 6 through 7. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to her eyes... And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her Neanderthal husband, I added that in there, um, who was with her, we are, and then he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
And so humanity was designed by God, right, to reflect his glory. But understand in this moment, Adam and Eve give in to the temptations of the evil one and they exchange, it's a fatal exchange, they exchange the glory of God for self-glory. Here's a word picture for you. They traded in their roles of mirrors and they became sponges in this moment. So as opposed to continuing to submit to God, reflecting his glory, they wanted to cast aside God's authority. They wanted to be autonomous in a sinful way. And they wanted to soak in glory for themselves. So we could say at this point forward, humanity would no longer respect their position as mirrors. So we could say the image of God is actually inverted in us. It's turned in on itself as we desire to be little gods. And one way of saying it is that the rest of the Old Testament is pretty depressing. It's a record of the unraveling of humanity. From this point forward, yes, you see plenty of glimpses of God's grace, foreshadowings to Jesus, but we also see human depravity amplify. It's a, it's a sinful progression. Think about this tragic text in Genesis 6-5. It's one of the most condemning statements in all of Scripture. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, listen to this, was only evil continually. And so what happens after this? Well, it results in God flooding the earth, purging it of all of its sin. And then what happens almost as soon as the ark docks? Noah celebrates by planting a vineyard and what? Getting drunk and naked, as we say in the South. I've seen a lot of guys do that back in the day, okay, at keg parties. That's what Noah does. So think about the faulty logic. I think I'll celebrate God's purging of the earth of sin by sinning, by getting lit. And then his son does something shady. And then sin is back at the forefront. Well, then one of the clearest sections of Scripture that reveals how God's people forsook their original purpose is Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. It's not just a weird Sunday school story about people building a cool tower that God then tears down and sends them out. What we see at the Tower of Babel is that they do the exact opposite of God's original purpose for them. So look at this verse again. I know we're moving around a little bit. Come, and just just see the pride underneath this word. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over all the face of the earth. And so notice quickly four key reversals of God's original design. First of all, they build a city for themselves. Remember, originally the earth and the Garden of Eden was to be a theater to display the glory of God. And so now mankind wants their own place so that they can be glorified. Think about this now. They desire to build a tower to get to the heavens. And this shows us the sad state of humanity post-fall. Think about it. Formerly, they were able to walk with God in intimate fellowship. And so now they're clamoring to get back to Eden. They're trying to get back to heaven in their own power, but they can't because our sin has separated us from God. They desire to make a name for themselves, which we see is the direct opposite of our original purpose, to make a great name for God. And then finally, they did not want to be dispersed over all the face of the earth. It sounds like a lot of inward-focused churches, us four and no more, just want to hang on when God desires for us to multiply out. Remember Adam and Eve, he said, be fruitful and multiply. 
spread image bearers, spread my glory. So it's easy to see that Genesis 11 is this culmination of humanity's desire to be at complete odds with God and his original design and commission. And listen, y'all, this extends all the way to the New Testament. In Romans 1, 22 and 23, Paul sums up the plight of humanity. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So he's trying to show us that, hey, everything's reversed and inverted. We were made to be image bearers that reflect God's glory, but we've traded all of that in, all of his good gifts, his design, his purpose, so that we can worship faulty images. Let me just say, City Light, to connect the dots, that that didn't just happen then. It continues to happen today, doesn't it? As we look around about us in our community, in our world, as we look within our own sinful hearts, it's obvious that everything continues to be reversed and inverted. You know, sin causes us to not treat image bearers with dignity. And this includes ourselves. You know, suicide rates in our society are at an all-time high. People don't believe they've got worth and value. You know, racism is still rampant in our country, especially in the South where I come from. And as opposed to being sacrificial in our relationships, we have a propensity to be harsh toward our spouses, abusive toward our kids. And did y'all catch that news story out of Colorado? How could a grown man murder his family, strangle his three- and four-year-old daughters, and bury his wife on the property where he worked? completely inverted from what God intended us to be. You know, our society tends to use people as opposed to greatly valuing people. If I can just be honest for a moment, I think as a pastor, one way I see this most clearly is through the pornography industry. And so, yes, men and women are victimized. And yes, women look at it, but it's mainly men. Statistically, a far greater percentage of men look at pornography, and serve to contribute to the stripping of dignity of God's daughters. I'll just get real honest for a moment. Um, One of the greatest deterrents in my life when I was wrapped up in pornography in college is when I understood that on that screen was not just a woman that was made to be an object of my pleasure. It was when I began to understand that, wait a minute, the image of God is in her. And not only is she some daddy's little girl but she belongs to the Heavenly Father. And His image is in her. So when we see dignity, it drives us away from treating people just as objects of lust and pleasure. We should esteem women, women, assert dignity and value to them. You know, one of my favorite bands, the Avett Brothers, they lament this in their song, True Sadness. I don't know if you've heard this, but I think they capture it well. It goes like this. Angela became a target as soon as her beauty was seen. By young men who tried to reduce her down to a scene on an X-rated screen. Is she not more than the curve of her hips? Is she not more than the shine on her lips? Does she not dream to sing and to live and to dance down her own path without being torn apart? Does she not have a heart? And I submit that she does. She carries God's good image in her. We carry God's good image in us. And if you think about it, the aim of many of our lives isn't really to give God glory. I mean, so many people work their fingers to the bone to make a name for themselves. 
They trample people as they climb the corporate ladder. Um, They still buy into the faulty philosophy that he who dies with the most toys, most possessions in the end, well, you win, but you you don't. God created us for more. We seek self-glory by obsessing over polished social media profiles and bigger platforms. But God never meant for it to be this way. So yes, you can still see God's image, even in fallen humanity, but it is severely distorted because of sin. That's the really bad news. Well, here comes the good news. I could not leave you there. It'd be the most depressing day in the history of Omaha, okay? It's raining outside, talking about sin, the image of God being marred. But I ask a question, is there any hope? Can our dignity be restored? Well, praise God, there's a resounding yes. You think about it, yes, sin is seen, humanity's sin is seen on the pages of Scripture, but our sin isn't central in the Bible. Praise God that our Savior is central in the pages of Scripture. And the hope we have is that the God-man, Jesus Christ, he came and he lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve to die. He triumphed over sin, hell, death, and the grave so that we could be restored to our rightful position. So big truth number three is this. Jesus restores the image of God in us. Praise God for that. Christ restores his image in humanity. Let me take us back to somewhere we've been before. Colossians 1 and verses 15 and 16 and following. He, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And notice this. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. So since humanity's fallen, how will God get glory in his creation? How will he fill the earth with his glory? Well, the answer is, A better image has to come, and the image has to succeed where his image bearers failed to succeed. And what we see in Colossians is that Jesus came not just as an image bearer, Christ was the actual image of God. He represented his heavenly Father perfectly. He would not just carry some of the likeness of God as we do, rather, think about this, the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus Christ, his Son, And Christ was not created like us. He was not just created with a purpose by God. But think about this. Jesus participated in creation as God. The world was created through him for his glory. So Christ is the better, the greater, the ultimate image sent by God from heaven to earth to do what we failed to do. And so what did he accomplish while he was here on the earth? Well, he lived a perfect life of glory to the Heavenly Father. He didn't spurn the Father's authority. He submitted to it to every point, even though it carried him to a cruel cross. And he fulfilled every single requirement of the law on our behalf. And Jesus was obedient by not just holding up and locking down with his buddies. He traveled. He dispersed himself. He preached the coming kingdom. He brought God glory everywhere he went, and he multiplied himself through making disciples. Hope you're seeing that Christ Jesus did what we could not do. He lived the life that we failed to live. And then we get more good news in 
Philippians 2, 6 through 8, Paul tells us that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So here's what Christ did for us to kind of wrap this up. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but hang with me. It's helpful. It's on the screen. I'm going to go through this twice. Jesus humbled himself as God in order to take on the likeness and image of man. And he did so in order to redeem man back to his original purpose of being an image bearer of God. You see that? It's glorious news. Let's go through it one more time. We've got to get it. Jesus humbled himself as God in order to take on the likeness and image of man. And he did so in order to redeem us back to our original purpose of being an image bearer of God. So the glorious news of the gospel is not just that Christ saves you from the fiery place, from hell. That's incredibly good news. And we're eternally grateful for that. But the good news of the gospel gets even better when we realize that when we turn from our sins and trust in him, he begins to reshape the image of God in us that was lost at the fall. Think about how glorious this is. We take it for granted. When we trust in Christ, he takes up residence in our hearts through the person of the Holy Spirit. And he gives us brand new identities as sons and daughters of God. He restores our dignity. And he begins the process of making us more like himself. And to sum up the process of formation or sanctification, what's happening is he's taking the inverted image the inward-turned heart, and he's pointing it back outward. He's replacing selfish love for self, for our own deal, our own will, with a sacrificial love for God and for other people. You know, I think the formation or sanctification process is summed up well in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-nine. Listen to this. Just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So church, that's what spiritual formation is. So listen, it is so much more than middle-aged women wearing capri pants and doing every Bethmore Bible study that comes out under the sun, okay? <laughs> it is so much more than reformed hipsters in skinny jeans and waxed mustaches waxing eloquent over the Puritans and reformed theology at the coffee shop with a pour-over in hand. It's so much more than just trendy Christianity. Yes, we've got to give ourselves to means to be formed, but through formation, our original design and purpose is given back to us. So there's one final question that we've not answered yet. Well, how then does God fill the earth with his glory? How does that original mandate come to fruition? What's well, nothing less than the Great Commission? Our final core value, all this is actually linked. We can even see all of our values in this one message. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So think about this. In the garden, God gave Adam and Eve the mandate to multiply, to fill the earth with image bearers, to spread his glory. Then on a mountain... After his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus gave this command to his disciples to go out on mission, to live as a sent people, to multiply, 
and to fill the earth with more disciples or renewed image bearers who reflect back the glory of God. So the church's mission, City Lot, our mission is nothing less than the original mandate that God gave in Genesis 1. And so as we're faithful to make disciples of the nations and the people in our neighborhood, as we're faithful evangelists, leading people from death to life in Christ in the gospel, and as we teach people to follow all the commands of Jesus, eventually, through the work of the church, all the earth will finally reflect the glory of God through his renewed image bearers. Every people group will know that he's the king, and then the king will come back, and he'll make all things new. And so, see, I hope you can see that there's so much more to your rescue than just escaping hell. God saved you to recreate his image in you, to give you your dignity back. And he designed you to represent him well in the world. I've only got like literally two minutes left, and Chris will get a big cane and pull me off the stage. Uh, but I've got to end on a couple of practicalities, right? The whole message has been about if you see the end, it motivates the means. But we still have to give ourselves to the means, okay? This goes real fast. I can't go through all the disciplines or spiritual practices like prayer and formation, uh, silence and solitude. I can't go through everything. But let me end by just highlighting two things that have been essential for me in my formation of of being conformed to the image of Jesus. Number one, reading the Word and sitting under the Word of God. Oh man, if you detach from that, you will not be formed in the image of Jesus. Think about it this way. Um, God created the world through his words. And he recreates your hearts through his words as well. And in his word, it all centers on Jesus. So we get the necessary reminders of the gospel that help us to keep going in a fallen humanity, on a falling planet. Just to be candid for a moment... The people that know me best, my wife, my co-pastors, I am a terrible perfectionist. I can be brutally hard on myself. And because I am, I have a tendency to be depressed and despondent on occasion. I have struggled with this my whole life. If I'm to be real honest with you, there are days when even one of your pastors just wants to give up, to quit ministry, go back to being a fishery scientist. That's what I set out to do. But that's why I need the gospel. I need to continually hear the good news that Christ Jesus was perfect on my behalf so Cameron doesn't have to be perfect. God doesn't expect that of me. He just expects me to lean into the perfect one. I need to hear the good news of the gospel that I'll never measure up, and that's okay, because Christ Jesus measured up for me. So see, Jesus and the gospel, as I hear about it through his word, it actually helps keep this preacher's sanity. And it gives me rest for my soul. It gives me power to keep on keeping on. And then number two, what's been another essential practice in my life? Well, number two, a a deep commitment to the local church. It's a a messy family. It can be challenging at times, but oh, it's a necessary family. As many of y'all know, my my pal-paw, grandpa for you Midwesterners, but my pal-paw for Southern people, he just passed away. Uh, He had a sudden stroke. The Lord took him. He was 80, lived a long life. He was a Christian, so he's in heaven But I have to confess that, man, my heart has not caught up with my head yet. He was the closest thing I had to a dad. And just to be frank, it's been really devastating. I've been wrestling with God over this. I've had a lot of pain. I've asked a lot of questions. Where are you, Jesus? It seems that Christ has been just a little bit distant lately. But I know my theology. I know he's always with me. I've been jaded. And so the other night, I took my journal out and I said, Lord Jesus, show me 
how you're still with me. Help me to see instances of your grace in this season. And listen, y'all, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I have primarily seen Christ during this hard time through the local church. I've seen him through you. You you guys, it's a qualitative different experience than what we experience out there. I have seen the care of Jesus through your sweet condolences, your cards, your letters, your emails. I've seen the grace of Christ through meals you've prepared for Brittany and I to take pressure off during this season to give us space to grieve. And I have seen the tenderness of my Savior through my bosses, Chris and Gavin. I'm so thankful they don't just look at me as an employee. They look at me as a, as a man on a journey with Jesus. And the reason I haven't preached in a while is they said, Hey, Cameron, take some time off, man. Before you jump back in and start caring for the souls of other people, make sure you care for your own soul. So City Light, as I look back and consider my Christian life, the pitfalls, the trials that have threatened to get me off the path, I would have given up and thrown in the towel a long time ago if I hadn't been for God's beautiful Christian community. Time and time again, the church has corrected me, encouraged me, and helped conform me to the image of my Savior. You know, Wayne Grudem sums up sanctification this way. He says it's a work of God and man. Now, not an equal work. It's primarily God, but a work of God and man to produce Christ-likeness in our actual living. So I say to you in closing that we can always count on God to do his part. He'll always be faithful. But may we be driven this morning to aggressively pursue spiritual formation so we can do our part and be conformed to the image of our Savior. Let's stand together. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, um, God, this morning, man, I'm just so thankful for you. I just, in this moment, my heart really is overwhelmed with your love and affection. Just thank you for a good Savior, man, that pulled me out of the mire. That, um, man, I've got a long way to go, but you're in the process of restoring your image in me. And God, I just can remember when I did not live as your representative. I could care less, God, but you've changed me, and I just thank you for that. And God, I just thank you for good gifts, like the Word prayer and this beautiful faith family, my faith family, oh God, that you use to make me more like you. And I pray this morning, if people don't know you, that they would trust in you so they can have their full dignity restored, and God, so they can really live out a better purpose in what they're living. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.